you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. As we continue our study through that wonderful letter, a sermon series we've called Serious Joy. And we have been thinking together about the kind of joy that doesn't change with circumstance, but the kind of joy that is serious and weighty and full. And we're going to come to Philippians 4 and continue that series in a moment. But before we do, if you're visiting with us this morning and you need a Bible, uh, raise your hands. We have uh, some lovely folks who are distributing Bibles this morning. Hold them high so they can see you. And uh, we'd be happy to give you a Bible this morning. If you don't own a Bible, uh, that's our gift to you. We want you to take that, write your name in it right now, uh, and, and let the Lord write the word in your heart. Read it, study it, come back and gather with us on Sundays as we read and think about and preach the Bible and, and, and grow with us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you, need a, if you need a Bible, just keep your hands up. Everybody wants one, has one on this side over here, James. Uh, we'll be glad to give you one. Now also, before we turn to the sermon, we got some homework, right? Now we've been doing this how many weeks now? Y'all don't sound no more enthusiastic than you did the first week. <laughs> Y'all know this coming. We do this every week, all right? So we are memorizing Philippians together, and the key verse was verse 8, and the text is verses 2 to 9. So I wonder if we can, if there's a volunteer who will recite verse 8 for us, and uh, we can uh, encourage. All right, come on, Ms. Deb. Come on. All right. Amen. 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 Praise God. Ms. Mara, I saw your hand. You don't get out of it because Deb did. Come on. Come on. Y'all encourage Mara and the girls. All right. Come on. Amen. Amen. All right. All right. I don't know if you noticed, but they did it in two languages. He said a little sign language and English. That's all right. Come on. Come on. Y'all encourage our sister. Come on, Nikki. Amen. Amen. Well done, Nikki. Well done, Nikki. Anybody have verses 2 to 8 for us or 2 to 9 for us? Want to do the text for us? I, I like that little man. Little man ain't scared. He's like, I got it. I just showed up and I got it. <laughs> Anybody? Come on. Who's that? Oh, is this Tari? I got my glasses on. Come on, Tari. Amen. Amen. It's all right. We love the King James. Mm-hmm. 
It's all right. You're doing great. Amen, amen, amen. Well done. Well done. I don't know about y'all, but I, I, I love it when the Nigerian section, you know, repeats things. They, they bring it with the nice accents. That's all right. That's all right. Well, let me pray and it will turn to God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word and we pray your blessings as we consider it. Thank you for how we've been able to hide it in our hearts, to memorize it, whether um, young children or um, a little bit older. We praise you for the gift of memory. And we can think of nothing better to use that gift on than your word. And now, Lord, as we come to hear your word preached, we pray help us to hear again with clarity and with faith. Hide the preacher behind the cross. Lift up Christ. Make your word appear to us as it really is. Like honey in the honeycomb. Like gold purified. Let us taste the sweetness of it and be enriched by it, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Conflict. It's a fact of life. I love the way the poet and playwright Lorraine Hansberry put it. She says, every human being is in enormous conflict about something, even if it's how to get to work in the morning and all of that. The world is full of conflict. Sometimes we don't have to leave our beds to be in conflict, do we? We, we in conflict with the alarm clock. We in conflict with the work day that's ahead. We in conflict with the rascal land next to us. You ain't got to go far to find conflict. Somebody said that we either going into a trial or in a trial or coming out of a trial. I find that depressive, but I think it's true. <laughs> conflict abounds on every hand. And surprise, surprise, conflict's in the church too. It's on the mission field. This letter, Philippians, you'll recall, is being written by a man named Paul who is a, a missionary church planner. 
He's in prison. He's in conflict. He doesn't know whether he's going to get out of prison, whether he's going to live or die. So he's, he's fighting life and death conflict. He's writing to a church in Philippi, which he, you remember, founded, preaching the gospel there. But he was only there for about three weeks because of what? Conflict. He got beaten and run out of town. And in chapter 1, around verse 29 or so, he says that that church, even though he's gone, is still experiencing the same conflicts, struggles that he had. And now he turns in chapter 4 to begin to address some conflicts in the church itself, not just with those outside the church, but now between those inside the church. I know that some of you feel a call to the mission field, whether long-term or short-term. Uh, let me tell you something that you may not know, and that, and that is this. One of the major challenges on the mission field is conflict, not just with those who don't yet believe in Christ, but often, very often, conflict inside the missionary team. And that's what Paul is addressing in this letter. That disagreement, that consternation, that, that embattlement that happens between Christians. In fact, Paul could write in another letter, Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, that they had better watch out biting and devouring one another unless they, they basically consume each other. It conflicts that one thing that turns Christians into cannibals. So whether on a mission field or in an established church, it's vital then that we learn to resolve conflict in a God-honoring, peace-loving, peace-restoring way. And I will suggest that that's one of the burdens of this text this morning, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 9. And I want to suggest to you that joy is not only restored when conflict is settled, but it is joy that is part of the fuel for resolving conflict. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 9, if you're taking notes this morning, I want to hang our thoughts on, on three points. First, we find peace with others when we become peacemakers. Peace with others by being peacemakers. Number two, find peace when ourselves when we build a culture of peace, peace within ourselves, when we build a culture of peace, and number three, we find peace with God only when we seek the God of peace. Peace with God when we seek the God of peace. So let's start with peace with each other. You see it there in verses two and three, Paul mentions a particular conflict that's going on. I entreat Iodia and Syntyche, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, we don't know much about what was going on with Iodia and Syntyche. Uh, we know that they are in some disagreement. Uh, we know from that fact that then they need to become, if they haven't been already, peacemakers. And to be peacemakers, in this text, we're going to see three things are necessary. We need to entreat others to agree. We need to sometimes help others agree in the Lord. And we need to remember 
that these are Christian folk, useful to the Lord's service. So in conflict, number one, we, we, want, to, we want to be those people who entreat others to agree. To agree. We don't use that word entreat in, in normal English anymore, but essentially we want to encourage, exhort. We want to kind of plead or, or beg. We want to press them toward agreement. We want to say, come on, y'all. Let's work this out. Come on, y'all. Christ is with us. Come on, we can, we can do this. And what we're entreating them to is agreement. That word there, agree, is the same word that Paul uses back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, when he says, have the same mind. He, he wants Yoda and Syntyche to, to have the same mind, to agree together, to come to see things the same way, to accept a common perspective on what's going on. Now, we need to be entreated to agree because in our flesh, that's what we don't want to do, do we? I mean, in our flesh, we like, the reason we fighting is we don't agree. And in our flesh, we tend to think, now, if I agree with this person, I might be giving up too much. We tend to think, no, 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 no. The way I protect myself is by maintaining this disagreement because I'm right, they wrong, and, and I ain't trying to get hurt no more. Now, that's how you say it too, no more, Right? If we trust our hearts doing conflict, we'll only extend the conflict because our, our flesh has a way of sort of self-righteously reasoning and protecting itself. So when you think about it, while Paul's instruction in verse 3 is really simple, it is also difficult and profound. The answer to every disagreement is agreement. Right? The answer to every disagreement or, or conflict is the, the making of that peace whereby we begin to see things collectively, together, the same way. So he entreats these two women to agree in the Lord. When's the last time you, in a conflict, said to someone, you know what? I agree. It's a powerfully disarming statement when it's genuine. So we're talking about peacemaking, not peace faking, right? Because some of us are real good at peace faking. You see the person, hey, how you doing? I ain't seen you in a minute. You doing all right? I've been thinking about you. Person walk away, mm. Girl, let me tell you what I was thinking. <laughs> That's peace faking. Peacemaking here in the Lord is, is actually sort of saying, you know what? Let me lay down my armaments. Let me lay down my weapons. Let me lay down my arguments. And let me work to agree with this person. And this changes our orientation in conflict, doesn't it? Because in, in conflict, we normally enter the conflict not asking ourselves, how can I find some way to agree with this person? The best we come to that is, how can I find a way to get this person to agree with me? That's not the same thing. And so Paul says, agree in the Lord. Agree in Christ. Go into the conversation with that aim. I, I maybe first learned this sitting with a young couple. Chris and I have been married about 15 years. A young couple named Jay and Shantha. Uh, they weren't yet married. They, they loved to 
click, click, click with us when we come into town. And so we went out to dinner one night, and, and, and Jay and Chantha just talking. And, and, and Chantha, this little live wire, and Jay kind of, he real one of them real mellow, slow-walking, cool dudes, right? Just never gets ruffled. And, and she was going at him about something, and he appealed to her. And she kept going at him, and he appealed to her. And she kept going at him, and he appealed very gently. Then finally, Jay just looked at her and said, so what, you ain't going to agree with me? We're not going to come into agreement? And, and she had to stop and realize that, oh, what we should be doing is moving toward each other in agreement. So whether it's a husband and a wife, a boss or a coworker, parents and children, roommates, church family, first thing we need to do if we're going to be peacemakers is we need to seek, encourage, entreat agreement in the Lord. But notice the second thing. Because if you know, like I know, sometimes encouragement ain't enough. Sometimes you also need help to agree. And that's what we see in verse 3. Paul writes here again to a person who we don't know. He calls him his true companion. That could be a proper name, but probably better translated this way. True companion, that, that could be anyone there. We, we don't know who this is. But clearly from that label, it's the kind of person who sticks with you in relationships, isn't it? It's the kind of person that maybe understands Proverbs 17, 17, a, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. So there's somebody in that church and there ought to be somebodies like this in every church who can be appealed to as true companions who help those who are in disagreement. Now, whose side do you think he was on? It wasn't on Yodia's side. It wasn't on Syntyche's side. He wasn't even on Paul's side, though Paul calls him a true companion. He shows up like that angel on the, on the, in the Old Testament and says he's on the Lord's side. Right? So he's helping them to agree in the Lord, not really just win a battle. And he's not taking sides in, the, in this fight, right? Because to take sides is simply to spread the conflict wider. But this true companion comes alongside them with the goal of helping them agree together in Christ. And in our, in our strongest conflicts, we, we all will need that kind of help. But notice the third thing about being a peacemaker now. A peacemaker reminds people of some vital things. Reminds people of their usefulness in service to Christ and of their genuine, sincere faith in Christ. Because think about it, what's the first thing you start to question when you're in conflict with somebody? A little conflict going on for a little while. It's like, I ain't even sure he need to be serving in the ministry. We might need to sit him down. Let it go on for a couple weeks later. I don't even know if he a Christian. And you notice, Dennis pointed this out to me as we were preparing the sermon this week. You, you notice that we always ask that of the other person. Right, we we don't never we ain't in the conflict. Like I don't know if I should be serving. We ain't in the conflict. Like I don't even know if I'm a Christian. The way I'm acting, right? It's always the other person, right? Now notice how Paul heads that off right quick in verse three. He says, "Now help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers." That's their usefulness in service. And then he asks this, whose names are in the book of life. That's their genuine faith. For the book of life is a symbol of all those whose names are written down by God who are, who are redeemed, who are truly saved. 
And this service that he points to, it's no, it's no small service. He says here, who stand with me side by side in the, in the gospel ministry. We've seen that phrase stand by side, side by side before in chapter 1, verse 27, where he tells the whole church to stand side by side in the defense of the gospel. He's using that same phrase here now with these two women who find themselves in conflict with each other. And notice, they're side by side with Paul in the gospel, not just in children's ministry, not just at the hospitality table, not just at anything else that people tend to think of as women's ministry. No, they are standing side by side together with him in the most profound ministry in the Bible, and that is the the furtherance of the gospel. These are fellow workers together with Paul. They, they do it alongside someone named Clement. This is the only place in the New Testament that, that Clement is mentioned. We don't know much about him, but the fact that he calls him by name much, must be communicating some kind of reputation to Yodi and Syntyche because he must be known to the Philippians. But then he uses that, that name that they are his fellow workers in the gospel. And Paul uses that frequently. And almost never does he use it of lightweights. So in Romans chapter 16, he uses of Priscilla and Aquila. He uses the same term in Romans 16 of two other people, someone named Urbanus and Timothy, his true son in the faith. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul calls Apollos his fellow worker. Titus in 2 Corinthians 8. We've seen Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, verse 25. He's called a a fellow worker. And in Colossians 4, there there are three people uh, that Paul mentions there, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus called Justice, who are his fellow workers in the faith. He addresses Philemon that way in verse 1. He, He calls Demas and Luke his fellow workers in verse 24 of Philemon. And John uses this term too in 3 John 8 to refer to anyone who partners with missionaries to see the gospel go forward. So Paul fully honors and respects these women because of their labor in the gospel. He reminds the church of their effective service so that the church might be spurred on all the more to help these women agree and return to fruitfulness. And he reminds the church that these women are Christians, that they should help these women because their names are written in the Lamb's book of life and because they bear the the name of Christ. These are genuinely your brothers and sisters. Don't be thrown by the conflict. These are Christ's people. Help them to agree. So if we want to see peace with each other, we have to become peacemakers. We might ask ourselves a a couple of questions here just by way of application. And that, very simply, are are, are you, am I, a peacemaker when others are fighting? I hope we are. I hope we're not joining one side or the other. I hope we're not gossiping. If we get involved at all, I hope it's as true companions helping each other. And we ought to be, given the promise of Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's a high calling with a great blessing. Another question, are you in conflict with someone? If so, will you agree with that person? 
Now, don't agree to disagree. Will you agree to agree? Will you seek common ground and a like mind with that person? The third question. Do you need help? Do you need help in the conflict that you're in? Will you ask for it? Don't be proud. Don't be resistant. Don't be fearful. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. Ask for help. And finally, have you forgotten the other person is a Christian useful to Christ? Actively remind yourself of that. Let that shape how you think of them. Let that shape how you speak of them. Let that be the reputation you spread about them. It's amazing that when we, we still treat people honorably when we're in conflict, that, that makes it easier to resolve the conflict. But if you let, and I let, harsh things develop in our mind and our hearts and come out of our mouths, we're just making it harder to close the gap. So honor them as Christians, useful to Christ, and let that be part of the fuel that, that moves you back toward them. So we want to be peacemakers if we want to have joy in the midst of conflict. But number two, we want to build a culture of peace that will not only support that peacemaking that we've been talking about, but we want to build a culture of peace that actually also encourages peace within. That's what Paul writes in verses four to seven. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I want to suggest to you here's the, the four R's of building a culture of peace in a local church. Number one, there is rejoicing. Rejoicing. We see that in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. This is the third time Paul has given us that command. The first time in chapter three, verse one, which we considered a couple of weeks ago. And as we made mention a couple of weeks ago, this, this, this word here or this sentence here is a command. He's commanding as Christians, we commit ourselves to rejoicing ourselves in Christ. And you recall that when we talked about this, we said there are at least four implications of that. Number one, the fact that it's a command means that our joy is a moral responsibility. You ought to be joyful in the Lord. God has saved you not to make you miserable, but to make you joyful. And that's a moral responsibility insofar as God has made it a, a command. And number two, it implies that the, the Christian is personally accountable to God for their joy. You can't outsource it. You can't delegate it. You can't blame shit. If you ain't happy on some fundamental level, it's because you're not rejoicing in the Lord. Your circumstances should not be the sort of decisive determinants of your joy. But the things that we have in Christ, in the gospel, and his coming kingdom, that ought to be the foundation of our joy. 
And if we're not reaching into that and rejoicing based upon that, that's on you. Because we can't do it for you. The other person can't do it for you. So it is something we're going to be personally accountable for before God. But number three, if, if this is a command, and it is, then by the Spirit of God and grace, joy is always within our reach. Notice what he says in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. Rejoice in the Lord when you feel like it. Rejoice in the Lord when you got time. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say it, rejoice. And the fourth implication of this being a command is that we must let go of our passive approach to joy and actively seek the greatest possible happiness available to us in Christ. There is more happiness for you in Jesus than you and I have began to experience. And we ought to rejoice, make glad our souls in him. Now, what I want to draw out this morning is is this simple fact. Rejoicing promotes a culture of peace. It's hard to be mad at somebody if you're happy. You ever been mad and happy at the same time? No, you ain't. You ain't. You might have tried, but you ain't. One of my best friends from, from high school and college, a brother we call, his nickname is Wag. His name is Corey. We call him Wag. I don't know why. That's what we call him. And Wag was aggravating. He was a great friend. Always happy. And, and one of the things that made Wag happiest was seeing you mad. He's always picking, always starting stuff. And you couldn't sort of show that he was getting under your skin because if you showed he was getting under your skin, he'd be like, look at him, he mad, he mad, he mad. You know? <laughs> and then he just doubled down, right? He just keep coming at you, he just keep coming. And pretty soon, you, you had one of two things that you were going to do. You were going to get real mad and nobody ever stayed mad at WAG or you were going to start laughing. You just couldn't be mad and happy at the same time. And so it is in Christ. There may be many things that come into our lives that that disturb us, that anger us, that trouble us, that that create some kind of stress or conflict in our lives, but those things won't have the final word if we are rejoicing in the Lord. Joy promotes peace. Joy pushes out conflict. And and, and we've seen this in terms of this culture. Chapter 2, verse 14. Where Paul says there, do all things without what? Complaining and questioning, right? All things, do them without complaining and questioning. Or earlier in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, you remember what he said there? He said, basically, look, don't, 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 don't think that we are important and not regard other people as important as us. He says, look out for the interests of others as well as your own. That, that kind of self-denial and that, that resistance to self-importance. That, that those are things that make room for the joy that Paul has been exhorting in this letter. And so we ought to rejoice in the Lord, to delight in him, to treasure him, to seek our gladness in him. And again, this is as applicable to marriage and child-rearing and the workplace, as it is the church. You fighting with your spouse? Don't be mad, get glad. Rejoice in the Lord. Remember the days when you were always whining that you didn't have no spouse. 
Now you got one. You got what you asked for. Praise God anyhow. <laughs> Hallelujah anyhow. Praise the Lord. <laughs> See, your wife ain't here, bro. You better be cool. You better be cool. <laughs> works, in, works in the workplace, too. You done told everybody and their mama that your boss get on your nerve. Anybody listen, you start talking about how bad work is. Now, two years ago, you ain't had no job. You had no job, and it was, woe is me. I got no job. But sent out 200 applications. Ain't nobody called me back. Let me borrow $20, you know. (laughs) Now, you got a job. You paid well. It's demanding. It's stretching you. The boss is demanding, and yes, he or she is unkind sometimes. And now you done forgot God done bless you with the job, God feeding you, God paying your rent, God, God putting clothes on your back, and, and, and instead of rejoicing, right? If we would commit ourselves to a culture of joy, we would be squeezing conflict out of our lives. There's an interesting illustration of this in Matthew 9, 14 and 15 where the folks come to Jesus and they like, your, your disciples, they don't fast like everybody else. And Jesus said, I'm with them. When the bridegroom is with them, that ain't time to be fasting. That's time to be rejoicing. And beloved, Christ is with us. Ain't time to be gloomy and in sackcloth and ashes. Christ is with us. Emmanuel, it's time to be rejoicing. Or his peace comes from his presence. I love the way Bob Goff put this. He says, when joy is a habit, love is a reflex. When joy is a habit, love is a reflex. So the first R is rejoicing. The second R for building a culture of, of peace in the church is there in verse 5. It's, it's in that word reasonableness. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. We, we could translate that word as, as gentleness or as graciousness. One one theologian defines it this way as as fair-mindedness, the attitude of a man who is charitable towards men's faults and merciful in his judgment of their failings because he takes in their whole situation into his reckoning. So the reasonable person is someone who thinks about the other person and all that's going on with them, what their situation is. And, and then they, they sort of look at that person with, with fair-mindedness. And they look at that person with, with charity and with mercy. And they demonstrate their reasonableness. See, this is to be known by all. They show their reasonableness in how they deal with people in the church, whether in conflict or not. This same reasonableness or gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? In Galatians 5, 22. In 2 Corinthians 10, 1, Paul says, he uses the same word of Jesus. This is our model. So, so what Paul is saying in Philippians 4, verse 5, then, is that we ought to look like people filled with the Holy Spirit that treat others the way Jesus does. With reasonableness, with gentleness, with graciousness. We want reasonableness to be our reputation. That's when we're on our way to a culture of peacemaking. 
Now, this seems obvious, doesn't it? Until you real, realize how unreasonable some Christians can be. We've all heard the horror stories of churches that have split over the color of the carpet. Other insignificant things. That's why I'm glad we rent the high school auditorium. The carpet ain't our choice. You got to get mad about something else. <laughs> we heard the horror stories, right? And beloved, these things should not be so. And when these things happen, you can be sure that there's a, there's a culture of chronic, low-level, arguing, complaining division that's been at work at that church long before that little thing blew up. People have been practicing being unreasonable. Been practicing not being gracious or charitable or merciful in judgment. And so when that thing comes to public view, the heart already practiced in being unreasonable just continues what it had been doing unnoticed for a long time. And so Paul here, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls us to, no, don't, don't let that little spirit sort of grow in your heart. Don't let it fester in the life of the church. Build a culture of peacemaking by each person in their own heart and all of us together with each other actually practicing reasonableness. Let it be known to all that you're the kind of person that takes into account someone else's life. And then you make gracious judgments and assessments based upon it. So we all have to ask ourselves, am I a reasonable Christian? Just as Jesus and the Holy Spirit are. It comes to our third R, reverence. You see there the second part of verse 5, Paul says there, the Lord is at hand. That means he's near. He's coming. It could be any moment now. And the implication is we want to live our lives in light of that fact. Do we live like Jesus is almost back? Do we live like he's going to be here in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye? He's going to come like a thief in the night. The Lord is at hand. He's coming in all of his holiness, in all of his glory, in all of his splendor. He's coming with his reward for his people, and he's coming for a watching, waiting bride. There's something about living in front of people that changes how you live. In, in industrial psychology, it's a principle, you, you get what you measure, right? So the thing that you evaluate people on, the thing that you attach pay, pay raises to, that's what the employees do. You can talk about a whole lot of other stuff, but if you're rewarding and measuring these things, that's what people will do. We see the same thing with our children, don't we? Boy, I'm going to the store. While I'm gone, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. Come back home. And then you can see, all you see going up the steps is that last foot. You know, they just run, <laughs> running up the steps to do what you told them to do because they didn't do it when you weren't watching them. When your eyes come upon them, the, the behavior changes. And it's true of us as Christians when we are aware that Christ is watching us, is observing us, that he is at hand. So we want to develop the mental habit of recalling the Lord is near and living quorum Deo before the face of God. It's not like if we ain't thinking about God, he ain't thinking about us. 
It's not like if, if we sort of get distracted and start doing some other things that, that somehow y'all didn't see it, so God didn't see it. God sees all. And he's with us always. And we want to live in light of that truth. And we won't act up in conflict if we think our Father is in the room. We will seek to agree and to walk worthy of the gospel. Which brings us to a four R. Because, you know, preachers got to alliterate. It's really prayerfulness, but I called it requests. <laughs> See it there in, in the text. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known, made known to God. The other thing you can't do is argue and pray at the same time. I love it. I, it's not original to her, but my wife says it all the time. I'm going to change it just a little bit. No, I'm not going to change it. This is how she said it. I was about to take credit. She's how she said it. If you're going to worry, don't pray. If you're going to pray, don't worry. It's a good paraphrase of Paul right here. It says, do not be anxious about, notice, beloved, anything. Don't, don't worry. Don't wring your hands. Anything that's going on in your life, any what we've been calling in this series, any care, any earthly situation, which may indeed be pressing and may be important and may be painful, could even, like Paul, be life and death. Paul says, whatever's going on in life, don't spend your mental energy fretting about it, worrying about it. Wringing your hands about it. Jesus says in Matthew 6, or I think it says in the Gospels, look, you can't add one inch to your height worrying. You can't add another moment to your life worrying. What you can do worrying is waste your time. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Then he gives the contrast. But now notice, in everything, not in the things you think God can handle, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, going to God with requests, along with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We want this kind of prayerfulness in the church so that we might be building the culture that comes up out of it, a culture of trusting God, of resting our futures in God's hands, of being thankful that we can leave it with God and believing that whatever God does, God does well. Notice in the text, he goes on in verse 7 to give us the result. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will, be, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The result of rejoicing, the result of reasonableness, the result, the result, of, uh, the result of this kind of requesting in prayer is peace within. And notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, make your prayers with thanksgiving and so on, and God will change your circumstances. For his own good purposes, he might leave you right there in the mess. No, he said, God will change you. The peace of God will guard you. It will be a fort. It will be a garrison. It will protect your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus.
There's a way, a proper way to wall ourselves off from the influence of the world. There's a proper way to wall ourselves off from the devices of Satan. That proper way isn't withdrawal from the saints. It isn't isolation. It isn't a a sinful self-protection. That proper way is prayer and praying together and finding ourselves guarded by God, by his peace as a result. So we're going to be peacemakers and find that an easier lifestyle if we actually build as a church a culture of peacemaking that grows up out of rejoicing and being reasonable and being reverential, fearing the Lord, and here making our requests known to God. So a couple of questions. Are you rejoicing in the Lord? We've been talking about this the entire series. What have you put into practice for the happiness of your soul in Christ? Are you reading the word more with gladness? Are you praying more with the expectation of joy? Are you fellowshipping with the saints more actively? We need a, a couple of folks to host Fellowship Fridays in January. Some folks who've been trying to encourage us in our fellowship with each other because when we gather together, as Peter would say, we, we pass the peace. We build each other up. Consider opening your home in January or February or March or consider planning an activity that, that just gives us an excuse to joyfully be together, to stir each other up in loving good deeds. See Jamie or Jaleesha or Thierry or Alex if you're interested to do that. But what are you doing in your lane to make your own soul glad in Christ? Or a second question, are you being reasonable or gentle with others? Is that your reputation? If you don't know, ask somebody. They'll tell you. Let me encourage you to ask somebody older and wiser because they'll tell you nicely. Are you reasonable, gentle, considerate? Or, or number three, are you expecting the Lord's return? Before this morning's sermon, when's the last time you thought about Jesus coming back? We talked about it last Sunday. Have you thought about it since last Sunday? That Christ is near and when he comes, he's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Has that been a source of hope and joy and delight for you? And are you praying about everything? Trusting the Lord. Giving him thanks. Making your requests known. Let's build a church culture of rejoicing and reasonableness, reverence for God and prayer. It will mean having peace no matter what else is going on in life. Finally, There's peace with God. So we want to seek peace with others, peace within. The most important peace is peace with God. In fact, there's a very good chance that if we don't have peace with God, we're not going to experience peace in a lasting way anywhere else in our lives. 
So in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul comes now to um, teaching us how to have the God of peace be with us. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if anything is excellent, if anything is worthy of praise, think on these things. And then he goes on to talk about not just what we meditate on, but it then goes on to talk about the model we follow. So Paul says then uh, in the next verse, verse 9, what you have learned and received and seen and heard in me, practice these things, and here's the consequence, and the God of peace will be with you. So if I were putting these two verses in one word, it'd be the word meditate. We want to get our minds meditating on the right things, and we want to model or follow the model, meditate on the model of the right way of life. Verse 8, Paul says, meditate on virtue, meditate on good things, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. That, that should mark our thought life if we are Christians. That's a list of virtue. But, but all of us are saved out of the world. All of us are saved out of the mud of, of sinfulness and, and the mud of a fallen world, which means then that there's likely some vice in our thinking too, right? So rather than true things, we sometimes give our attention to false things. And, and, and rather than meditate only on the honorable, sometimes we have crooked thoughts. I surprise myself sometimes. Be driving and I'm thinking about conflict or thinking about dealing with something. And, you know, I've spent all the do Wait a minute, the beating? That's Ron Burns. That's the old man. That's, that's, that ain't righteous. You have to bring that thought captive to Christ. Or, or rather than meditating on what's just, we, we settle and compromise, even can seek what's unfair. The pure gives way to the dirty. The lovely to the ugly. The commendable to the reprehensible. And the question would be, which column is our mind in? Which of these things do we give our attention to? Which one reflects our dreams and our, and our strategies? If, if the Lord were to make our thought life a movie, would it be G or R-rated? I mean, if, if the Lord were to make our, our thought life a movie, would it be a feel-good holiday movie of the year or, or would it be an action horror flick? And listen, beloved, it's not just what we think about that impacts our peace. It's the qualities that we think about. For example, a person can think a lot about God, but the quality of their thinking is ratchet. They could be thinking about a false god. Their thoughts can be in that, that vice column. They could be thinking hard thoughts toward God. They may think God is unfair and unjust, and, and they may find, for example, the, the, the truth the Bible teaches about hell, they may find that reprehensible. So it's not merely the object that we're thinking about, it's the, it's the sort of whether or not what we're thinking about, we think about in terms of virtue or vice. So it's the quality of what we think 
that will determine, determine the experience of peace with God. Or whether God is to us the God of peace or a God that causes us conflict. And you may be here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. And, and maybe you can put your thoughts about God in one of these columns. My guess is you're like a lot of us before we were Christians. We, we maybe had thought of God sometimes and, and it was a little bit between the columns. We didn't think the idea that God would judge us was fair. We didn't think that was righteous. We didn't think that was commendable. We thought of ourselves as basically good. But on the other hand, we could maybe give some praise to God for good things that happened in our lives. If there was something lovely or, or something true that, that, that passed into our lives, we, we might say, praise God, though we had no idea who God is, really. Maybe that's you. What the Bible invites you to is a more definite knowledge of who God really is. And the amazing thing is this, that, that this knowledge of God isn't just sort of getting some right thoughts together or even having high quality thoughts of God. This knowledge of God is actually a personal relationship with God that changes your eternal future. Here's how the Bible puts it in John chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus is praying there, and Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, whether or not you go to heaven or hell is bound up with whether or not you really know God as he really is. And can I tell you, beloved, God is in that virtue column all the time. He's always true, never false. He's always honorable. He does all things well. He is pure. He is just. That's why he's going to judge us, precisely because he's just. And we deserve the judgment because of our sin. But he's also lovely and, and commendable. And we know that because he sacrificed his son in our place on the cross to bear the penalty of our sins. There's never been a more lovely act than that the Son of God volunteered to take our place to suffer our judgment so that we can be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. There's nothing more praiseworthy about God than God would satisfy his own penalty system for you when he didn't deserve it, but you did. That's what the gospel is about. God taking our place to pay the penalty we deserve, to give us a life we had forfeited, and to love us forever in his kingdom and his glory. What you need is a change of mind about who God is and about what you deserve and about your need for mercy and grace. You need to change your mind about who Jesus is to you. He has to go from being somebody your grandmother believed in or maybe your mother believed in or somebody those religious folks believed in but you didn't have no time for. He's got to go from being that to being the one you recognize as the Lord and Savior of your life who gave himself on the cross for your salvation, who rose from the grave three days later and yes, is at hand, is near, is coming again to judge the earth and to save his people. And you have got to recognize that's your only hope for escaping hell. And it's a great hope. It's not a thin hope. It is sturdy and sure. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And you'll discover something. More of your thoughts will be moving from the vice column to the virtue column. He'll be renewing your mind 
and renewing your heart and making you more and more like the Savior that he is. But now to do that, and if you do that, we want you to go on to meditate not just on the right mindset, but to meditate on the right models too. We talked about this last week. We want to follow the apostolic example. We want to follow the leaders who knew Jesus and who founded the church. Paul here says, listen, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the consequence is the God of peace will be with you. The way we follow Paul, having never met Paul in this life, having never seen him or heard his voice, is we follow the word of God. That's where we have the apostolic example. And so what we want to do, if we want to be near to God and to know his peace and to worship him as the God of peace, is we want to not only think this way, but we want to follow what the scripture tells us to do. Receive God's commandments as life-giving and not burdensome as joy-producing and not aggravating. No person does this naturally. As I said, we all grew up in a fallen world. And so we all need our minds renewed according to Romans 12, verse 2. And we all need examples to follow. Sometimes the most vulnerable Christian is that Christian who thinks they don't need nobody else. They kind of got it on lock. They're going to figure it out. If they don't know it, they're going to figure it out on their own. You can do that, and you're going to learn some things. You're going to learn some hard things. As my mama would say, a hard, a hard head makes a soft behind. Experience is not your best teacher. It's your most expensive teacher. It is wiser to learn from example, to learn from models. And God has been kind to give us the apostolic example in the Word and to give us brothers and sisters to learn from as well. So, beloved, if we would want joy in conflict, we want to be peacemakers who build a culture of peace in the church and who seek the God of peace by the renewal of our minds and the following of apostolic example. And the promise is this in this text. Verse 7, the God of peace or the peace of God which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And at the end of verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. Isn't it worth it then to be peacemakers, building a culture of peace, seeking God, not with our lips, but with our whole selves? May the Lord give us grace to do so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for inspiring these words in this sacred text. Breathe out by your spirit through the apostles. And we thank you for preserving your word for your people. Lord, we ask that you would give us grace to grow by it. Lord, don't let us be like that man who looks into the mirror and forgets what he sees no sooner than he turns away. Don't let the birds of the air snatch the seed from our hearts. Don't let the cares of this world choke out your word, O oh Lord. But make us the wise builders who build their houses not on sand, but on rock, which is the word of Christ. Help us to do what we have heard, to become what we believe. 
Help us to show what we celebrate. Grant that more and more by your Spirit, Christ would dwell in us and, and, and work through us that he might be known, Lord, here in our community. Give us grace and favor to do this, we pray, and make us careful to give you all the glory. Give us peace, O Lord, with others, peace within, and most assuredly, peace with you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. We pray it in his name. Amen.